again, it's my desire to uh, affirm us in our faith and uh, in, in, our, in the belief of the doctrine of our salvation. Uh, it's important, I believe, in the world we live in that we, we be able to live confidently uh, for the Lord. And, uh, and we can do so, especially if we uh, understand and, and, and we feel a sense of security in, in our relationship with the Lord and in, the, uh, in our salvation. And so I just want to just be a time where, where our, our salvation and our relationship with the Lord is affirmed and strengthened. Uh, before I uh, forget it, uh, like I did last night, uh, in preparation for tomorrow morning, uh, I have an extensive, extensive assignment for you. And uh, if you would be my students, I'd find a way of um, um, making sure you do that assignment. Um, but being I can't grade you, uh, and uh, that kind of thing, I, I won't be able to do that. But uh, for tomorrow morning, I would encourage you, uh, before you come to service, to read Romans chapter 5, 6, 7, and the first 13 verses of chapter 8. Uh, because uh, I'm, I'm going to be doing some overview of especially chapter 5 uh, in preparation to speak to you about uh, the chapter 6. And then I'll be speaking, doing an overview of chapter 7 uh, in order to speak to you, uh, in relation to speaking to you about chapter 8, the first 13 verses. But uh, I don't anticipate to read all those passages, so it would be helpful if you have beforehand uh, involved yourself in those passages and, and read them and, uh, and uh, um, think about them. So you have a, a bit of an uh, understanding uh, of, of the uh, content of especially chapter 5 and chapter 7. Uh, but, so I encourage you to read Romans 5, 6, 7, and the first 13 verses of chapter 8. Tonight, as you know, uh, I'm going to be speaking to you uh, about justification by faith and how it is affirmed and it is illustrated in Romans chapter 4. Allow me to observe that the concept of being justified by faith and the concept of the righteousness of God being imputed to us by uh, faith in Jesus Christ, as Paul would put it a number of times here in these passages, uh, is, is those two concepts are interchangeable they're inter interchangeably used uh, and, and presented to us in Romans chapter 3, verse 20 through 31, as well as in Romans chapter 4. Uh, so I, I take them to mean that they mean, actually mean the same thing. And so keep that in mind. My, my simplest definition for both concepts, uh, as I indicated last night, is simply that it has to do with being brought into a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Uh, that, um, and so that is my simplest definition, both for uh, uh, righteousness, the, uh, being justified by faith, and the imputed righteousness of, uh, uh, of Jesus Christ to us by, uh, through faith in, in Christ and in faith in God. I... Uh, I indicated last night that being justified by faith is not unique to, to the New Testament. Uh, the, uh, the concept is first found in the Old, Old Testament, uh, and so it's given to us there. Uh, I would, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 attests to that uh, in, a, in an indirect way by saying, by faith, uh, Abel, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Noah. How did they live? How did they? What was their how? What was the basis of, of their their relationship with God? Well, by faith, it was faith, uh, and so uh, the, that is indicated there. But allow me to expand just a bit more on the doctrine of justification by faith 
as it was found and expressed in the Old Testament. Uh, there are a number, uh, several examples of that uh, given to us in the Old Testament. Uh, I would like to just point out about four of them. And the first one is the question that is first asked by Job. It's first asked by Job in Job 9.2 when he says, How shall a man be just before God? And because of the context of uh, the question, Job may have been asking, How can a man be vindicated by God or before God? A, a sinful man, how can he be vindicated before, before a holy God? Or how can a sinful mortal man be a just man, a, more, a man of moral integrity? But the more likely question that Job was asking is, how then can uh, a man be justified with God? How can he be clean that is born of a woman as, as uh, Bildad um, uh, put it in Job 25.4? So how can I, a sinful man, be justified before a holy God? Uh, and so there the question is first asked as, uh, as I have explored the, this concept in the Old Testament. And then, of course, you know, and, and we're going to see that again tonight, that Abraham was justified by faith according to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, where it says, And Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And uh, also, I, I think of Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11, where it says, And he shall, and he shall see God the Father. I, I, I believe he's talking about how God the Father sees the travail of God the Son in his suffering and in his death, uh, in the shedding of his blood. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. There you have the word satisfied brought in. And, and by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. When he's talking about his righteous servant, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquity. And of course, then you have that statement in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, where, as I indicated last night, the just shall live by faith. Well, um... The, uh, the doctrine of uh, justification by faith is uh, proclaimed and taught in the book of Romans, probably more extensively taught in the book of Romans than any other New Testament epistle. And so uh, tonight we're going to be looking at, especially at Romans chapter 4, but before I do that, um, uh, well, first of all, I'd like to have the handout, the, uh, the teaching outline uh, handed out uh, uh, as uh, before we continue here, and uh, I would have us uh, uh, take a look, have a, do a little bit of an overview of the doctrine of justification as it is found in Romans, just an overview of it. Uh, and, the, and so there are five things I'd like to say about this that I find in the book of Romans. The doctrine of justification is introduced as an integral part of the gospel, as we noticed the first night in first uh, in chapter one, verse sixteen and seventeen, and you know those verses. Um, the doctrine, secondly, the doctrine of justification is then proclaimed and defined in chapter three, verses 22, 21 and twenty-two, especially as we noticed it last night. And then the foundational basis for justification is given to us in chapter three, verses. 24 and 25. And now, tonight, we're going to be looking at how justification by faith is further explained and defined uh, and exemplified. And then you're given the effects of justification, as I see it, in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Well, that's a, a quick, uh, basic overview of the doctrine of justification as, I, as we have it in the book of Romans. Now, let me go back and, and just briefly uh, review again the uh, justification by faith as given in the, uh, in the passage we looked last night. Uh, two things um, that I want to note. By the deeds of the law can no flesh be justified uh, in, his, in, in God's sight. That's verse 20 and verse 21. No one has ever attained to the righteousness of God by keeping the law. For the simple reason that in order to be justified by the law, you need to keep the law perfectly. 
And so no one has ever been justified by, by the law simply because no one has ever perfectly kept the law. It's because if you, if you uh, keep the, the whole law, except for one point, James says, you become guilty of the whole law. And so, uh, uh, you know, so that's... Uh, the only way to be justified by the law is to be able to totally and perfectly fulfill the law. And, you know, none of us in here profess to have done that. But what James tells us, and uh, is sometimes illustrated by, by uh, uh, the idea that, that if, you would, if you would be hanging from a chain of ten links from the ceiling, how many links have to, have to break before you drop to the ground? All ten? No, only one. And so in that way, uh, it, you know, James was, uh, said it right when he said, if you keep the whole law except one, <laughs> you, you become guilty for, for, the, for the whole law. And so uh, that, that truth is affirmed here in verse 20 and 28 of chapter 3. And of course, it's affirmed that we're freely justified by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ. Now, also, uh, in preparation for uh, uh, chapter 4, uh, allow me to just reflect uh, on the uh, meaning of justification or uh, the, the meaning of being justified. Just, uh, justification is often defined as the condition of standing before God as if we had never sinned at all. That is often a, a cliché sort of kind of thing that is given as a, as a definition of justification. Uh, but I'd, I'd like to look at uh, how different people have uh, defined this, uh, the concept of justification. Marcus Lind, in his uh, commentary on the book of Romans, The Gospel of God, one of the few Mennonite uh, uh, author commentaries on the book of Romans, uh, says that justification is the act of God whereby the believing sinner is declared righteous before God. Val Yoder, in his uh, definition of justification, says it has to do with the acquittal of the penalty of sin due to the provision of Christ on Calvary and the changed life of the believer. Stuart Bristol, I referred to him a few times, he has a, sort of a delightful little commentary on the book of Romans uh, that is a little bit unique. It's unique uh, uh, for an evangelical uh, commentary. But it's, I found it rather delightful. And he says this um, about justification. Men are justified, made right with God, by faith, in order that having been made right by faith, they might live rightly by faith. Maybe that's what it means uh, when Paul says, from faith to faith. But what is unique about this, what I like about this, in, in Briscoe's statement on justification, it's sort of refreshing coming from uh, an evangelical uh, uh, that, uh, you know, because justification is often disassociated, not associated with living rightly. Justification is seen as merely a status or position that one has with God. And so I find it a bit re quite refreshing uh, for this statement from Stuart Briscoe when he says, Men are justified, made right with God by faith, in order that having been made right by faith, they might live rightly by faith. Uh, I, I like that. Um, and so, but William Barclay is not my favorite uh, commentator or theologian by a long shot. But he he sort of got it right when in, in his definition of justification. Um, in, uh, and so this is what he says. Righteousness means a right relationship with God. The person who is righteous is someone who is in a, a, in a right relationship with God and whose life shows it. <laughs> I, I like that as well. Um, you know, he connects uh, the practical aspect of, uh, of the Christian life with uh, a justification. Well, Brother Sylvanus, uh, definition. The act of God, whereby the believing sinner is forgiven of his sins and is brought into a right standing with God through the merits of Christ's death and resurrection. Again, uh, I'm emphasizing that it has to do with rec being reconciled with God 
uh, coming into a right standing with God by on the basis of Jesus' propitiatory sacrifice. And, uh, and so that, uh, that uh, is uh, uh, my own personal definition of, uh, of justification. It, because in my mind, being justified not only has to do with the position I have with God, but in being justified, we're, we are also, and I say this carefully, um, most evangelicals will deny this, but being justified, we are made righteous. And we're, that, that statement is actually found in, in uh, Romans chapter 5. Uh, and so, as I see it, justification changes everything. It rearranges my whole life. Not only my relationship with God, my, not only my status with God, but it rearranges my whole life. It causes me, enables me to, to live in, in newness of life. Um, Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. Uh, it causes me and enables me to, to walk in the resurrection, as Menno Simon Menno Simons like to say it. And the ramifications, in my mind, of, of this transaction uh, where in the process by which I am made right with God and, and all that is involved is, uh, to me, is a transaction that is mind-boggling and, uh, and, and enormous. It, it, it's by, uh, and so, I'm acquitted in the courtroom of heaven. Um, I... Uh, I, I know uh, no more. I'm under the wrath of God. My name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I mean, uh, can it get any better than that? Uh, and and uh, my uh, now uh, now I can cry, "Apple Father," as the, as Paul puts it in, in Romans chapter eight and verse fourteen and fifteen and sixteen. Uh, now I'm an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ uh, again. That is enormous, and I, by being a joint heir, I understand part of what that means, at least, is that whatever in, in eternity in, to come, uh, whatever God the Father will share and give to His Son, He also shares and gives it to us as heirs and joint heirs with God. I, I, that's mind-boggling. I, I, I can't explain all of that. But I rebel in the anticipation of that. <laughs> and and I, I trust you to too. So, but, you know, we really need to come back to the, the basic question. And the basic question is, so how is one justified in faith? How does this actually take place? And can you define it in simple terms. How, you know, you need the parents, you need to be able to uh, take these deep concepts of justification and etc. and be able to put them in simplest terms for the sake of your children. You need, you need, to, you need to take that through and pray about it and, and seek the Lord how you can communicate that uh, how this actually takes place. Um, and, and you know, the, 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 the statement is right to say that it is by faith that I appropriate, take to myself, that's what I mean by appropriating, the redemption that is in Christ, I take it to myself, I, I embrace it, I, and uh, when, so when I, as a guilty sinner, in repentance and faith, embrace Christ as my sin sacrifice, that, that happens by faith. When, when I trust in the atoning sacrifice of Christ for my sins, when I, by faith, finish, uh, uh, embrace the finished work of the cross on Calvary for my sin, when I believe, uh, and this was, this was Jesus' favorite uh, uh, these are Jesus' favorite words. I mean, uh, again and again, he said, believe. If you believe, believe on the, and, and you know, uh, if you believe, you have eternal life. Uh, what does it mean to believe? This was, Jesus said this over and over and over again. If you believe in me, you will have eternal life. 
But what does it mean to believe? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. When I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I am saved. But you know, again, when Paul and Silas said that to the, to the uh, Philippian jailer, uh, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, that's, a, that's pretty good in, in a few words and simple, but yet very profound, <laughs> because we need to understand what it actually means to believe. Um, I appreciated the, uh, the the few thoughts in in the opening this evening from Romans chapter ten, and and that is that is very meaningful to me because uh, of uh, of uh, how well that phrase where it says, uh, uh, "Don't say, God, Lord, do something." I, I'm putting it in my words. You know, don't say, you know, bring somebody up, bring somebody down. That's not, you know, but this, do this. So this, this uh, became very real to me when I was a young man of about uh, 16 to 18 years old. And I was deeply searching and, and attempting and wanted to, and I, I was, I, was uh, uh, I felt insecure in, in my salvation. And I was, and, you know, and, and I came to, I, I was coming to God. And, and, and uh, one day I was just, Coming to the, to the to the Lord in prayer again, and you know, and saying, Lord, I, I you know, I did it again. I, I failed. I and I and, and Lord and and I in essence said, Lord, I can't take this anymore. The guilt, the condemnation that I spent, uh, I I just I just can't take it anymore. You have to do something. Was I saying the same thing that it says in Romans chapter 10? No, well, that's what came back to me. It seemed like the Lord said to me, not in audible voice, but there was a sense that came to me, and the Lord said, what do you mean I have to do something? I've already done it. <laughs> it's already done. It's already finished. Yes. The Lord doesn't have to do anything. He's already done it. Embrace it. <laughs> Take it to yourself. Say thank you. <laughs> and when that struck home with me, it made a difference in my life. And I, I just want to encourage you with that. Well, would you stand with me as I then finally come to the text? Um, and uh, I want to read all... I'm going to read Romans 4 in two sections. I'm going to be reading the first 16 verses and then... The last section uh, uh, later. So the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 4. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he asked whereof to glory, but not before God. For what says the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. This is the answer to the rhetorical question. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe. Though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he has been yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed, 
through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath, for where, where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. You may be seated. Again, Romans chapter 4 here in this section especially affirms and illustrates uh, what Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 31 teaches about justification and, and uses Abraham as an example and an illustration of this. Uh, Abraham, of course, is the most prominent example of justification by faith that you have in the Old Testament. Twice in this passage it refers to him as our father, verse 1 as well as verse 12. He is also referred to as the father of us all, meaning both Jewish and Jewish and Gentile believers, in verse 16. So, first of all, um, it, uh, in, in this passage, uh, I would have you take note that Paul is... Uh, is referring to the, the basis and the nature of Abraham's justification. And you have that in verses 1 through 5. And the, the, it, Paul begins again with a rhetorical question. Was Abraham justified? And in, in my own words, was Abraham made right with God by his works or by his faith? This is the way the this section begins. In other words, what is, what was, what is, what was the basis of Abraham's relationship with God? Was Abraham justified by his works or by his faith? And the indication is that it could not be both. So which one is it? Well, the, the answer to that is in verse 3 when it says that Abraham believed God um, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Uh, this is a direct quote from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. And of course, verse 4 goes on to say that this then means that if he was justified by faith, that means he was also he was justified by grace as well in verse 4. Yeah, that, that affirms faith, affirms grace. He, he didn't deserve it. He did not earn it. Uh, this, uh, Abraham was justified by faith. This affirms that. Uh, verse 5 says that he believed on him who justifies the ungodly. Interesting, isn't it? But notice the phrase uh, that is repeated over and over again in this section. Uh, the, the word, the, the, uh, there are different words. In the King James, he uses about three or four different words, uh, and, and those words are counted, uh, reckoned, impute, or imputed. And so, uh, so he, he, uses, he says it was counted or imputed or reckoned or unto him for righteousness. What I want us to note is, and, and you probably know this already, uh, this, this word counted in, uh, is uh, it's the same word, the word counted, reckoned, impute, imputed, uh, is all the same word in, in Greek. It, there's no, not four different words used. It's all the same word. So it all means the same thing. And it's used 12 times here in Romans chapter 4 altogether. Um, and, and in my mind, the, uh, the word simply means that my right standing with God is granted to me as a gift in response to my trusting in Jesus. 
and embracing him as my sin sacrifice is actually simple. Allow me to insert here that it is in, in relation to how to interpret this concept of imputation that I have a major disagreement with my evangelical and Protestant friends. Uh, in, in, in the evangelical and Reformed theology, there's, there's much made of this term impute, imputed, etc. My, my disagreement with Reformed theology is not that justification is by faith. I don't disagree with that. But my disagreement has to do with what happens in justification by faith. And the, the difference goes all the way back to the 16th century when our Anabaptist forefathers disagreed with the major reformers such as Martin Luther in Germany, Ulrich Swingley in Switzerland, and John Calvin in France. Now, I recognize that we have to be careful not to paint all evangelical friends of ours with the same paintbrush. We, we dare not do that. Um, but, but the major problem I have with Reformed theologians and their, and their teaching on imputed righteousness is that they teach a strong, what they call, and what is often called, a forensic concept of justification. And uh, it, it, has to happen, it has to do with what happens to imputed righteousness. A forensic a concept, a forensic concept of imputed righteousness teaches that in the act of justification, um, forensic meaning it's a legal term in a court of law, but the forensic concept of imputed righteousness teaches that in the act of justification, God changes my status in the record book of heaven, but nothing changes in me. And furthermore, once your status in heaven is changed, your status in heaven can never be re reversed regardless of what you do or how you live. Well, I have, I have serious problems with, with this concept of uh, this the forensic concept of justification. And uh, I, uh, we, we, it's important that we understand this, these words, impute, reckon, imputed, etc., count it. And, and possibly tomorrow morning we'll uh, take a further look at that as it's given one time in Romans chapter 6. Well, Paul goes on to say that what, uh, what, what is true of Abraham was also true of David, verses 6 through 8. So the conclusion is, in the first five verses, is that Abraham was justified by faith, and being it is by faith, it means it was by grace. And so what is true of Abraham is also true of David, verses 6 to 8. You know, while Abraham was the most venerated uh, person in the history of Jewish people, David was the greatest hero king in Jewish history. And more is written about David in the Old Testament story than any other person. And so, uh, in, in verses, uh, in these verses, it refers to David uh, and uh, uh, saying, uh, even as David also described us the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. You know, here it speaks of the uh, the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness without apart from the work, from works. You know, this is the blessedness of forgiveness, as I see it, verse 7 and 8. It's the blessedness of being made right with God. It's the blessedness of being made righteous by the circumcision that is of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, uh, chapter 2, verse, verse 10. 
And so what is said of David is based on David's own testimony in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. David was made right with God through undeserved, unearned forgiveness. Again, this reminds us that forgiveness, forgiveness is an integral part of justification as it's given to us here in verse 7. It means that God does not impute our sins unto us. He has forgiven them. We're released from the guilt and the penalty of our sins, the sins that are past. And, uh, and so, I, I need to stop there and because in, in Romans chapter 3, he talks about how that, uh, the, about the sins of the past. Uh, because there is something that you read in, in evangelical books that comes through again and again, which, which says that God has, the moment that you receive Jesus Christ, then uh, you receive the forgiveness of all of your sins, past, present, and future. Is that true? Think about it. Is that true? Is that statement true? Paul said in, in chapter 3, he said he, he forgives, he talks about the forgiveness of the sins that are past through the forbearance of God. That's verse 25. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. In the moment that you Embrace Jesus Christ. Were all of your sins past, present, and future forgiven before you committed them? Which means that God cannot impute those sins to you in the future? Is that true? Think about it. I'd like to hear from you. I wish I could have the discussion on that. I agree that all of our sins in the past, present, and future are atoned for potentially. But here Paul says he has remitted the sins of the past. And so John says, talks about uh, uh, confessing our sins and bringing our sins to him as, as believers, and when we confess our sins, be faithful and just, and to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there again, I, it, it's important that we think through some of those concepts and, uh, and, and, and uh, understand uh, what is being said. Well, and so, justification means that God does not impute our sins unto us that are past, and uh, and when when we sin uh, in the future, those need to be dealt with. They've been atoned for by the atonement of Christ. But to say that they have already been forgiven uh, is uh, is a problem with me. So Paul goes on to then affirm that Abraham was justified by faith not by the right of circumcision or the ceremony of circumcision. You have that in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Historically, uh, circumcision was a sign of the Jewish, Jewish covenant relationship with God. To the, uh, but to the religious Jew of Paul's day, they thought that the right of circumcision, the ceremony of circumcision, was what brought them into favor with God that circumcision was the basis of his justification. Um, what Paul says, no doubt being very radical to the Jew at this time, that faith was the basis of Abraham having a right relationship with God, the basis of being called the friend of God, and not circumcision. That's verse 10. The, the proof of that, as Paul points out in verse 10, is the fact that Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised. Um, 
maybe even a dozen years, if you look at the history, possibly even a dozen years, 12 years, or 10 or 12 years before he was actually circumcised, he was justified by faith. He believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, as it says in Genesis chapter 15. And then Paul goes on to say that Abraham was justified by faith and not through the law. Uh, you know, we, this comes to us again and again in the book of Romans. And, and, and maybe we're tired of it, you know. Um, but, but it was very, very important in Paul's day because uh, he was combating the, the error of the religious Jew at this point in relation to this matter of circumcision and the law. And so the, uh, Abraham was justified by faith and not by law. Um, and, and notice that to be justified by works and to be justified by faith is really synonymous in this passage. Um, Abraham was justified by faith. The key word here is promise, by believing a promise and not through the law. And, and though it's not stated here, it's, it's stated in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 17 that uh, the fact of the matter is that the law was not given until 430 years after Abraham was justified by faith by believing in God. Um, and so, just notice the concise and the conclusive statement that you have in verse 16, which sort of concludes uh, these the first 16 verses when it says, Therefore, it is by of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not, all, not to that only which is of the law, but to that is which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That's the, uh, the, the conclusion that Paul draws in relation to the fact that Abraham was justified by faith and not by works, not by the law, not through circumcision, uh, but uh, it is the faith that it might be by grace uh, so that the promise might be sure to all who believe. And so um, we, we come to this last section then, and I'm going to read this last section, and uh, uh, would you stand with me as I, uh, as I read? I'm going to begin reading in verse 16 again, and read through the end of the chapter. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be by grace to the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. After this written, I make thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be as though they were not, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promises of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, it's not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. You may be seated. So in the uh, first section of Romans chapter 4, the first 16 verses, uh, Paul was uh, uh, explaining the nature of Abraham's justification. And, and as I see it in this last section, verse 31, uh, verse uh, 16 through uh, uh, 25, uh, Paul uh, is then uh, uh, talking about and referring to 
uh, the, the nature of the faith that justifies. And, and that's what I want to look at here in this last section uh, in uh, Romans chapter 4. The, so the nature of the faith that justifies. In, in this passage, I see two characteristics of Abraham's faith. Two things that define the nature of Abraham's faith. You know, the faith that justifies. So allow me to take a brief look at, uh, at the nature of Abraham's faith. And I trust that uh, his faith will be a challenge to us, to our own faith. The first thing I noticed about Abraham's faith in verse 16 to 18 is that Abraham had a faith that rested in the verity of God. In other words, Abraham's faith rested in the absolute faithfulness and the trustworthiness of God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that he that, says that he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And that, again, affirms the absolute faithfulness and trustworthiness of God. You see, the object of Abraham's faith was its essential importance. In fact, the object of Abraham's faith was the most important aspect of his faith. It tells us about the, the nature of his faith. And, and, and the object was God himself. It, it rested on God and on the verity of God. Note that once again it tells us in verse 17, it repeats what he said earlier, and he's repeating uh, in Genesis chapter 15, where it says, Abraham believed God, that Abraham believed God. Yes. Um... As it is written, I made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, it's stated a bit differently, but yet he believed, even God. His faith rested in God himself, in the verity, in the faithfulness, and the trustworthiness of God. So Abraham believed God. The, the object of Abraham's faith was of essential importance. It was definitely related to his understanding and knowledge of God, as you notice. He knew that, it, that God could raise the dead and couldn't bring uh, something out of nothing. <laughs> he knew that. But Abraham's faith really rested on God himself, on the, the, the verity of God. He believed that God can give life unto the dead. He believed that God can speak non-existent things into existence. But it's really the object of his faith, and it's the object of our faith, that is of essential importance. It's not so much having great faith or little faith that is ultimately important. Jesus said, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, what does he mean about that? by that? If you have faith, if you have genuine faith, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, that is the important thing. It is, it is really the, the trustworthiness of God, the object of our faith that comes, that makes a difference. And, and I, I want to go back to sort of clarify this. Uh, what I'm attempting to say here to tell you is, is, is something that Stuart Bristol said in his commentary on this section. He said, you can have strong faith in thin ice, or you can have weak faith in thick ice. Okay, you get that? You can have strong faith in thin ice, and weak faith in thick ice. It's really the condition of the ice that is important. <laughs> okay? 
It's the truth about the audience that, is, that makes the difference in the final analysis. And it's not so much having great faith in God or little faith in God, it's the truth about God that is important. Let me testify to the, the truth of this statement that, you know, you can have great faith in Sinites and, you know, weak faith in Sickites. Because one day I have great faith that the ice was thick. And the reason I had great faith that the ice was thick was because I was one December day when the snow was on the ground and the the uh, the lakes and were, were frozen and the uh, the uh, yes the beaver ponds were frozen over and I was out moose hunting and I was following a moose track and the moose track came to a beaver pond and the the and the, and the moose and I'm and I'm I'm looking at a an adult moose track. And, and the moose, who I expected to weigh a thousand pounds, walked over this beaver pond, over the ice of this beaver pond, and I said, if a moose, a thousand pounds, then this, I won't tell you how much I weigh, um, this man can also walk over this ice because it is surely thick enough but what I didn't do was I didn't walk in the track of the moose because the moose evidently had that sense that he knew exactly where the ice was thick enough and, and, and so he, he made his way through the beaver pond. What happens in a beaver pond is that there can be current and other things that can make a difference between the ice right over there and the ice here. And so the moose went all the way across. I could see the track going across. But my Indian friends who taught me how to hunt moose said, never walk in the track of a moose. And I, I won't go into an explanation why that shouldn't be. But, but I was being obedient to him. And I was walking on the side of the track some way, some distance, to cross this beaver pond. And what happened, and as I was about halfway across this beaver pond, suddenly the ice cream gave way underneath me. And quicker than I can tell you, I was up to here in, 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 in ice cold water. So I want to tell you, it takes a breath of it. It was 15 below zero with, with a little wind blowing. And uh, uh, I, uh, well, I, I, I live to tell the story. But what, I, what the main point I'm making here is this that that uh, um, you can have great faith in thin ice or you can have weak faith in thick ice. It's really the condition that Stuart Briscoe said of the ice, the truth about the ice that is important. And it's the truth about God. Abraham believed, placed his faith and confidence in, the, in, in who God was, in the verity of God, the trustfulness of God, the, the trustworthiness of God, the faithfulness of God. So it's really the truth about God and your faith in Him, whether it's weak faith or, or great faith. Abraham had a faith that rested in the verity of God. I like the uh, I like the the amplified uh, when it defines this matter of faith. It says faith is the leaning or dependence of the entire human personality, mind, will, and emotion on God in absolute trust and confidence. And and we can be assured that God will never let us down if we place our faith and trust in Him in absolute confidence. So the, the first uh, aspect of the nature of Abraham's faith is that it rested in, the, in, in who God was, in the verity of God, in his absolute faithfulness, and, 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 and that he will be true to his promise. The second thing about the nature of Abraham's faith 
was that Abraham's faith rested in the promises of God. It tells us that in verses 18 through 21. Please notice two things about Abraham's faith here. Abraham's faith did not rest on certain assumptions he had about God, but he it rested on the the promises, not only the promises, but the spoken promises of God. That's verse 18. According to that which was spoken. So he believed in hope that he might become the father of many, many nations according to that which he was, that which was spoken. It was the spoken promises of God. Abraham's faith rested in the, the spoken promises of God. God's promise was that Abraham would have an heir, that he would have a child, that he would have a descendant, and that through this descendant, his descendants would be like the stars in number. That comes through in Genesis chapter 15. Now, help, to help us appreciate the... Um, this, this aspect of Abraham's faith, allow me to just take you a bit of a, through a, bit of a journey in relation to Abraham's faith. Um, in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham out of Mesopotamia to Canaan. He said, I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee that bless you. I will bless them that bless you. And indeed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That was the promise he spoke to him in Genesis chapter 12. Well, in Genesis chapter 13, Abraham is now in Canaan, and Abraham and Lot separate, and then for the first time, God promises his, him that he, that he would have seed, his, his off, he would have offspring that, that would be in number like the dust of the earth. That's in, 13, in chapter 13, verses 14 and 17. He noticed that he, he added to the promise that he promised him when he called him out of, out of, out of Mesopotamia. And then in chapter 14, Abraham rescues Lot, who was taken captive by the invading armies of, to the north of Canaan, and, and uh, so he takes him captive, and in bringing Lot back, who was blessed by Melchizedek. Uh, but in, in Genesis chapter 15, then, if you turn to Genesis chapter 15, you'll notice that God spoke to Abraham and said, He said, Fear not, Abraham, I'm thy shield and exceeding great reward. Um, what does that mean? In thy shield, and I'm thy exceeding great reward. Well, in short, it, to me it means it seems like God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, I'm all you need. <laughs> uh, just rest your faith in me. I'm all you need. Well, Abraham seemed to have somewhat be somewhat discouraged at this point. He had received the promise of a child, but. Uh, Abraham, at this point, uh, uh, wasn't quite sure about this, it seemed like. And putting it in my own words, he said, look, Lord, I'm, I'm still childless. <laughs> in essence, that you made a promise, but I'm still childless. You still haven't given me any seed, any offspring. What? with this promise you made to me. Well, will this seed need to come from my servant, Eliezer? The Lord said, no, no, no. Your seed shall come from your own body. And notice that Paul said his body was dead, meaning that it was not able to reproduce, to... to uh, uh, to, to bring a child in, into into being, and uh, and so, but the Lord said, "No, your your seed shall come from your own body." And then 
God did something interesting at that point. He said, uh, Abraham, I'm still putting this in my words, he said, Abraham, just step outside a moment. And, you know, come outside the tent. And it was, it was night. And it must have been one of those nights when the stars covered the heavens. And uh, that can only, you know, the kind of night that you have in, in a desert. This was on the edge of the Negev Desert down by Bethsheba. And, uh, and so he said, come outside and, and, and look at the stars. And so Abraham comes out, outside, and, and he, he looks at the sky. And, and no doubt the, the sky was covered with Hundreds and thousands of brilliant stars. Can you imagine? Have you ever been there? If you've not been here, if that doesn't happen here in, in, uh, in southern Virginia, you need to go to northwestern Ontario and go out into the wild where there's no artificial light at all when, when it seems like the heavens and the earth sort of come together and there's just this canopy of stars that bangle the night. And, and you, you look and you see hundreds and thousands of stars. It must have been that kind of night. And, so, and, and, and God said to him, look at the stars. You're, you're seeing, you're seeing. Your descendants will be like the stars of the night in, in, in multitude. You, you will have many descendants. It'll be like, like this host of, of heaven, the host of the stars. It'll be like the stars that you see. Can't you just imagine Abraham standing there and looking at the stars and having heard God give this promise? And in my mind, I, I see Abraham standing there and looking and considering what God has said, and suddenly Abraham made a decision. And he, and, and he said, I believe. <laughs> I believe you, Lord. And it's at that point that God, it says, and Abraham believed God, and it was a covenant to him for righteousness. That's the kind of faith that justifies. And it, and it goes on to tell us in, in this last part of Romans chapter 4 that Abraham's faith reached beyond his circumstances, his present circumstances. You see, those present circumstances were humanly impossible. The present circumstances for Abraham was his eighth body and the deadness of Sarah's womb. God promised Abraham something that he could not bring about himself. But he says, tells us that he staggered not at the promise of God, but he said, I believe. Regardless of the circumstances, what appears to be. Notice verse 20, 20 and 21 when he says, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was imputed to him for our righteousness. You see, Abraham had a lot of logical reasons to stagger and to doubt, to trust his own feelings and reasonings instead of the promises of God. But Abraham was fully persuaded that God doesn't overstate himself, that when he promises something, he will perform it. And that's the, the, the nature of the faith. That's the kind of faith that Abraham had, and that's the kind of faith that justifies Understand that God has promised the gift of eternal life. God has promised forgiveness of sins. God has promised that we will be brought into a right relationship if we if we embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that seem impossible? Are we fully persuaded that what God has promised? He is able to perform. So it says 
tells us in verse 22. Therefore, it was imputed unto him for righteousness. God bless you as you exercise this kind of faith in the relative and in the spoken promises of God. Not in relation to your descendants, having many descendants, but in relation to the promise of eternal life to all of those who believe. God bless you as you wish. God, our Father, we thank you for the promise of eternal life to all those that believe, that truly believe, and embrace by faith and repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray that there are any here tonight that live in doubt and fear. to the nature of Abraham's faith. Lord, I pray that we can believe you, believe your promises, and rest in the assurance that of what you have promised, you are able to perform it. Lord, thank you for it. Thank you. Dismiss us with your blessing. Continue to speak to us about these things in our hearts as we go through the night watches that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.